Well, I'm turning this morning to Matthew chapter 12 once again as we go through our exposition of the book of Matthew and working through it in a verse-by-verse fashion. Matthew chapter 12, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 43 through 45. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. Let's look together there at verse 43. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Our subject this morning is simply the unclean spirit. The unclean spirit. Uh, We are often tempted when we see these gospel accounts, uh, we're tempted to consider and tempted to look at things that may or may not uh, be um, of immediate uh, direct application to us. And this seems to stand alone, but we understand that what Jesus is referring to is what we looked at a couple of Sundays ago about how Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Satan himself and how Jesus answered that question by saying uh, if Satan cast out himself, then he's bringing down his own kingdom. He, He wouldn't do such a thing. And so it's not a standalone statement that Jesus now makes about this unclean spirit. He is, in effect, returning back to that parable or that speaking that he gave us in verse 29, uh, which says about the house, he says, or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. We learned that the strong man here was a direct reference to Satan himself and that Satan's uh, the strong man in this parable. But many ways, what Jesus is delivering here to these Pharisees is really a finishing stroke to the concept or the false narrative that Jesus was casting out demons by Satan. And so he returns back to this parable and declares that even if it should so happen that a demon leaves a man of his own volition, in other words, a person who has had a demon take up residence within him, even if that demon was to, by his own volition, remove himself from that man, the man would still if it was left empty, that home, that house, would be no more hopeful than it was before. In other words, if that house is left empty, then the enemy would soon return. Now, I've mentioned to us that one thing we do not understand nor take seriously enough is the reality of spiritual warfare. And when spiritual warfare is mentioned in a church, uh, you can mark this down. It always is met with spiritual warfare. Uh, There is a resistance uh, 
uh, by the demonic angels of this world, which are very much alive and well, to do everything they can to attempt to hinder and to prevent the Holy Spirit of God. But I'm here to tell you this morning that when we understand that our hope today, and we learned this in the 10 o'clock hour, our hope is found because if you are in Christ today, your house, your tabernacle is not empty. It is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. It is not possible for a person who is saved and indwelt by the Spirit to be possessed by the devil or his demons. Make no mistake about it, the devil and his demons are very much active and very much at work, but they cannot possess you. So Jesus is speaking again to the Pharisees, and he's giving the parable about those who had accused him of casting out devils by Satan himself, and he's all but telling the Pharisees, you are empty houses. And because your houses are empty, even in a case where if the devil himself, if a demon would remove himself from a person where the Holy Spirit did not dwell, where God's presence was not, even if it was to remove, that doesn't mean that that man is safe. You see, what we have to understand about the enemy, what we have to understand about the devil and, the, and his angels, is that the devil is doing everything he can, everything he possibly can, but he is under God's providential hand. Oftentimes, we give the devil credit for many things that happens in our life that had nothing to do with the devil. It just simply has to do with our old sin nature. We like to blame the devil for everything we do wrong. And we say, the reason I act the way I do, the reason I say the things I say is because the devil made me do it. When in fact, no, what's happening is you're choosing to do that because you're not yielded, living, yielded to the Spirit. It's easy to blame God when we're not acting right. We do have the, we have the hope and we have the joy of knowing that we cannot be possessed, but we need to understand that there is a very real enemy. This unclean spirit that is mentioned here was also referenced in Zechariah 13, and this unclean spirit is a reference to the realities of the devil and the reality of Satan and his demons. So as Jesus deals with this narrative here, You'll notice again, he gives the, the subject or the preface of what he's saying. He says, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man. This is very clearly not being cast out, but gone out. Uh, this, this demon leaves out of the man. Notice what he does, the unclean spirit does when he leaves a man. He walks through dry places. The dry places is a reference to desert arid areas, a place where there is no water. But notice what the, what the unclean spirit is seeking. I found this extremely fascinating and very thought-provoking. Seeking rest. The unclean spirit is walking about in dry places seeking rest. But what does he find? None. The unclean spirit finds nothing. He finds no rest at all. You see, one of the characteristics of the unclean spirit is an unclean spirit is always restless. It never finds rest. It only finds rest when it possesses the house of a man. 
This idea that the devil and his angels are just simply walking around just and, and in the, the, the cosmos and that they're not doing anything. No, the Bible actually says that the devil is like a roaring lion, lion seeking to devour whom he will. He's not passive. This unclean spirit is actively looking for a man, which Jesus gives as the house, as an illustration. He's restless. When the devil, who is this unclean spirit, make no mistake about it, the unclean spirit always desires and looks for that which is sinful. His presence in the heart of an individual never brings good. It only brings wickedness. The unclean spirit only dwells in filthiness. The unclean spirit, when in possession of a man, is always seeking to either reoccupy that man, which is what Jesus is going to teach here in a moment, or he will go out for another purpose. But when the unclean spirit, Jesus says, leaves the man on his own accord without any conflict, without any casting out. And by the way, we don't understand all what's going on in the demonic world. And that's why, uh, parents, you better be very careful about what you allow your children to put in their eye gate and in their ear gate. And you think this is innocent stuff. You're fooling yourself. You think this is just this is just uh, this is just a game or this is just entertainment. You better be careful because, again, only God can know the heart of a person. And you think, well, my child can never be possessed with the devil because they're, they're saved, they're converted. You better be sure of that. And again, not because they prayed a prayer. If that's your only evidence that they prayed a prayer, that's not certain enough. The devil is not playing in a realm that he is attempting to even play fairly or with any concern for your child. Now, we often spend a lot of time warning our parents about the children And we think that the parents don't need to be warned. And the parents need to be warned just as much. You dabble and you play in the demonic area and you think that you're just doing something harmless and you think you're doing something innocent. I want you to understand, you are are dealing with unclean spirits that have nothing good for you. And if your children follow in that same vein and they follow in that same walk, don't blame someone else for exposing your children to that. You expose them to it. It's about time that parents and we take credit and responsibility for what we allow our children to see. Now, by the way, he doesn't even need an entrance through that. A heart that is void of Christ, a heart that is void of the Spirit, is a house that can be occupied by the devil and by his demons. You say, preacher, you don't really believe in demonic possession, do you? I absolutely 100% do. You say, well, that seems like kind of old-fashioned. Well, then call me old-fashioned. But I want you to understand, show me scripturally where the unclean spirit and where the devil stopped his influence and show me where the demonic powers are gone. The unclean spirit is always marked by restlessness. That's what Jesus is saying. He seeks rest and he finds none. Why? Because the only place that that wicked, unclean spirit finds rest is in the possession of a person. Notice he says, then he saith, I will return. So the devil, who, or the spirit, 
unclean leaves in a way. He leaves the house of that person he once possessed. And I want you to understand that he uses an interesting phrase. We'll come to this in just a moment. But notice in verse 43 that the unclean spirit says, I will return unto my house. You realize what the unclean spirit is doing? He's claiming that that person is mine. That's my house. He's unapologetic. This is my house. Now he's not there. He's left by his own accord. But don't believe for a moment. Don't believe for a moment that he's not able and willing and ready to return. Because that's exactly what Jesus is teaching. He says that when that spirit goes out and is restless and cannot find a place of rest, he returns. This evil spirit is uneasy when he cannot find rest. Again, you think you can play around with things in this world. You can play around with the things of the occult and you think it's innocent. You can expose your children and yourself to things and you think that it's not creating problems. You're fooling yourself. The unclean spirit finds his residence in the human mind. He finds his residence in the human heart. He finds his residence and he's seeking wanderers to where he can find rest. His rest is found in man. But he finds nothing on earth. He finds it by the residence he takes up in people. Every place except the residency of the human is a dry desert place. He doesn't find what he's looking for. But where he finds rest is in the heart of the unbeliever. He finds that water he was looking for. So what does he do? The unclean spirit that is restless. Very simple outline this morning, but very pointed. We see in verse number 44, he says, I will return. The unclean spirit will return. One of the greatest lies that the devil has planted, but we do it of ourselves, is our self-reformation. Where we say, I've cleaned myself up. I am going to turn over a new leaf. And we think we've now somehow made our... We've made it better that we are, you know, the unbeliever says, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a better moral person. I'm going to do more things that are right. I'm going to be charitable. I'm going to be giving. I'm going to be loving. And we think self-reformation keeps the unclean spirit out. Self-reformation does not keep the unclean spirit from entering in. If today your salvation is based upon some form of self-reformation that you did, that you turned over a new leaf and that you decided to, to, to quit, uh, to quit uh, drinking and to quit being uh, exposed to evil things and you've done all this renovation of your own life and you think that's your salvation, you're fooling yourself. Your house is just as open to the unclean spirit as it ever was. Self-reformation is the great deceiver. It deceives us into believing, I've done enough. The unclean spirit cannot dwell here. But notice what the unclean spirit, when he returns, it says, I will return unto my house. He claims ownership from whence I came out. This teaches us very clearly that he's talking about returning to the very same place that he came out of by his own volition, by his own accord. And when he has come, 
He findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. This is a very direct picture of the man who tries to reform his own heart. But think about the boldness of the spirit. The, whole, the unclean spirit says, this is mine. This is my house. I own this. He claims ownership for something he had no part of. He didn't build that house. He didn't create that house. We're built and created by God. God is the giver and the taker of life. It is God who creates. We are His workmanship. We're not the workmanship of the devil. But the devil takes credit. And he said, this is my house. And when he returns, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Again, this is the teaching that Jesus was talking about here. He, he leaves this house and as the man's the, the devil left the house, the unclean spirit left, that yes, there was some emptying out, there was some sweeping, there was some garnishing, there was some, some decorating that takes place in that house. He says, I came out and now I will return. We don't understand how much control, and I don't think we ever will, how much control does an unclean spirit actually have of an unbeliever? How much control does he have? How much influence does he actually have over that person? Can we look out on the landscape and see some of the, the heinousness of what we see and as far as crimes and things that are occurring? And is it completely out of bounds to say that a person can be committing those things because they are under the influence of a demonic spirit? I don't think that's a stretch. But I also know it's not a stretch to think man's own depravity is bad in and of itself. And oftentimes we say no person could be that bad. They've got to be under demonic possession. No man can be that depraved. Apart from the Spirit of God, we are all, just like we learned this morning during 10 o'clock, we are all, there is still a restraining influence of the Spirit that's upon all of us. And yet, even if the devil himself comes out of a man on his own accord, he is sure to return whenever it's convenient and suits whatever his purposes are. So if self-reformation is not what does it, then what does it? What changes that the spirit, the unclean spirit, can no longer enter into the house of that person? It is only by a divine act of God that a man's house can truly be emptied, swept, and garnished to where the unclean spirit can never return. Do you see how contrary it is for a person who has been truly converted and as truly understands what it is to be saved to even dabble in the things that are of the unclean spirit? That type of preaching is disappearing from most pulpits because we say, no, that's just legalistic. Don't tell me what to do. Listen, an a believing person is not going to have a desire to try to invite the unclean spirit into their house again. And yet sometimes we're doing that. We're opening the ear gate. We're opening the eye gate. And then we wonder, what is going on? But the divine work that God must do is not just a reform that's temporary, but it's what we often refer to as that grace that overwhelms us, that grace that conquers us. It's that grace that the Apostle Paul talked about and said, I have been apprehended by Christ. 
not just kind of subtly pulled by the arm to serve God when it's convenient. His apprehension of Christ filtered into every aspect of his life that he was burdened by his own heart in Romans 7 when he says, I don't do the things that I don't, I do the things I don't want to do and the things I'm supposed to, I don't do those. This constant battle because he wanted to do that which was right by his Lord. You see, Reformation does nothing more but temporarily empties the house, but the unclean spirit comes back. Oftentimes, you hear people make mention of this, and this is what Jesus actually says. Verse 45, it says, Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits. I want you to realize the the frightening aspect of what Jesus is talking about here. If you truly believe scripturally that spiritual warfare is real, you understand what this unclean spirit is saying. When he returns, he's not coming back by himself. He's bringing seven others with him. So now instead of being possessed by one demon, now there's seven more. Now you've got eight in the house. Look, we can look at this and say, well, these these fairy tale stories in the Bible, there's not a single fairy tale in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And if you believe a single one of them is a fairy tale or is make-believe or is not true, I can't trust this. Listen, you've got a problem with God at that point. God's not given us a book of fairy tales. He's given us a book about who He is. And if He warns us about this and He warns us about spiritual warfare and you leave here today and you keep dabbling and you keep playing around with it and you think that you're not going to get burned, can a man take fire into his bosom and not get burned? You think, well, I'm a child of God. I can't get burned. You can still get burned. Some of you know what it is to be burned. I know what it is to be burned. I know times when I left my guard down and let things in that shouldn't be there. You get burned every time. This unclean spirit can't enter into people that have been redeemed by conquering sovereign grace. But the unclean spirit does come back and he returns and it says when he's come, he finds it empty. No one else took possession of it. There's nothing hindering an entrance into it. It's been swept from maybe the worst sins. Most reformations just deal with our big sins. But you know there are no small sins with God. Most reformations say, I'm going to give up this big sin, but it doesn't take into consideration that the smallest of your sins sends Christ to the cross. That sin that you think is minor and is of no real relevance, that sin. Reformations are often just about getting rid of the big thing everybody knows about, but what about the thought life and what about the attitude life? What about your motive? What about the very things that are driving you today, the sinful things that are driving you that only God the Spirit knows about? But those who are without God, man has, just like the Pharisees, tried everything they do they could do to sweep out and to empty out the big sins, and yet they believe that they were the religious spiritual leader of the day, and yet Christ is telling those Pharisees, you're not even going to enter into the kingdom of God. These Pharisees, this wicked generation that he talks about, wherever the Holy Spirit is not present, there has been no change. Again, we talked about in, at 10 o'clock this morning that your salvation is not based upon what you prayed or when you went forward. 
the evidence of your salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit does not dwell with you, you are not a child of God. Doesn't matter what you've given, doesn't matter what you've said, doesn't matter how charitable you are, how loving you are, how moral you are. If the presence of the Spirit is not within you, you are not a child of God. Here's the thing, there's absolutely no way that anybody else could declare unto you that you're saved. Now we can see the fruit of it. We can see the evidences that point to a person who's been redeemed. But for me to stand up here today and declare to you, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. I can't do that because I can't see the heart. People have asked me over the years, am I a child of God? And, and I'll ask them about certain things and they'll say, well, I think I'm saved because I prayed. I think I'm saved because I go to church. I think I'm this. And a lot of thinking going on. And yet the presence of the Spirit is the evidence. It's the earnest. It's the down payment. It's what shows us that we are in fact a child of God. This unclean spirit doesn't occupy places where the Holy Spirit dwells. The devil, his demons have no problem with you cleaning up your life. It doesn't save you. The devil has no problem with the man who says, listen, I've been drinking all my life and I've been doing sinful things with it. I'm going to give that up. He's got no problem with that. See, reformations don't scare the demons at all. Because reformations are just that. Just kind of sweep it out, put a little bit of garnishing around the edges, make it look holy, make it look religious. But at the end of the day, all that was was a moral reformation. The devil doesn't object to that. As long as Christ isn't there, the devil has an empty house. As long as the Spirit isn't there, the unclean spirit has an empty house to come and go as he pleases. How many people do you think the demonic legions are entering into and out of that we can't see? I don't believe all that. You can take that up with God. The Bible says it's happening. They're everywhere. The presence of the demons are everywhere. When you go out into this world and you think, listen, there's nothing to worry about there. Listen, they're demonic work and it, it, they are at work. They are not passive. Just like he said, they're restless. They're seeking to find a place of rest. And even if your quote-unquote self-reformation works, according to what Jesus is teaching, not only is he going to come back and he's going to claim it as my house, he's going to bring seven more with him. Truly, as long as that heart has not been open to see the great truths and the great reminders of Christ's love. That devil, that demon, can use that man for his own purposes. Again, maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you don't believe in demonic possession. Again, you'll have to talk, take that up with God. Verse 45, again, he says, Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits, we didn't even mention this yet, more wicked than himself. See, what we don't understand is we don't understand wickedness at its core. We define wickedness by what a person does and we say that's wicked. What we don't truly understand is we don't truly understand the depth of the wickedness of Satan and his angels. We define everything by something tangible. We say that person is the epitome of wickedness. 
We could go down history books and we could say that's the most, that's, that's what wickedness really looks like. Can I say to you this morning that even the most wicked person you've ever seen or maybe you would define as the most wicked person, the wickedness of the devil is worse than that. You say there can't be any more atrocity that that person has committed. The devil is worse than that. Wickedness in high places, wickedness through the demons is worse than what your intellect tells you it is. He says they are, they are more wicked than themselves and they enter in and dwell there and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So you see the pattern. Jesus says the unclean spirit is restless. The unclean spirit is going to return at some point. And he's not just going to return, but he's going to reoccupy and he's going to bring with him seven spirits that are worse than him. Again, seeking rest. Other demonic angels join with him. Notice what they do when they get there. They enter in and they dwell there. Now the frightening thing is, is at this point, Jesus does not say and continue the narrative and say, and then they eventually leave. Difference in this is that he says very clearly, he uses the word now, to dwell there. When he made mention of it in verse 43, he never mentioned that they were in and then would dwell. This suggests to us that maybe this is a permanent residence. They take possession of it. They make it now their permanent place. There's no intent of leaving again. And Jesus says that now that person, that man is worse than he was the first time when the unclean spirit was there by himself because now there's numerous wicked angels there and you're in a worse state than you were. And then he describes, this is what I say will be in this wicked generation. People who are possessed, who have been reoccupied by the devil and his angels, and they are in a worse state than they were before. The sinful man now becomes more hardened in his heart. He becomes more unbelieving. He becomes more vicious. He might even begin at this point to begin to blaspheme the name of God, and he might even be guilty of the very thing that Jesus said is the unpardonable sin of counting the works of Satan, or the works of Jesus to the works of Satan, committing the unpardonable sin. Jesus clearly told those hearers that the devil had nothing to do with casting out the demons he was doing. Realize that no doubt that when we fall back into those places of unbelief for the hardened heart, the heart grows harder. Every time you hear the Word of God preached, every time you hear the command to repent and believe, every time you reject that, every time you say no, every time you want no part of that, your heart is growing harder and harder. You say, well, I believe in, I've, I've, I've listened, preacher, you've talked about this doctrine of election for many, time, for many years, and I believe if I'm meant to be, I'm meant to be, and, and God will just, listen, the call is to repent and believe. And your hardness of heart will continue to harden your own heart to where there will come a place and there'll come a time when you won't even receive it anymore. You won't even hear it anymore. You won't want any part to do with it. And you'll find yourself saying, I hate God and I hate everything God is about. 
Folks, there are people out there that rejected the, the Lord's message for so many years and they are so hardened and their heart has grown just bitter and cold and angry. And yet they heard the command to repent and believe hundreds of times. They've heard the promise, all that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus has said it, and yet they will not believe. You see, the Pharisees, with each interaction with Jesus, I believe the scriptures play this out, they grew harder and harder in their unbelief. Notice it says that even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. Remember, Jesus had told them in our message last week that how even the Gentiles believe the words of Jonah and they believe the words of Solomon. But the Pharisees, even though what Jesus said, there was one greater than Solomon before them, one greater than Jonah before them, they would not believe. And I made mention to you last week that even if Jesus Christ himself in bodily form was standing in front of an unbelieving heart, that would not be enough to convince them just because he was there. He's already said a greater than Solomon and and Jonah has been here, and yet you won't believe. In Christ's day, of course, there were Pharisees who were exactly in that case. They didn't love God in the way God was to be loved. I I believe with everything in me, the Scriptures play this out, that Jesus is, is all but telling them that, look, you are not held in possession by the things of God. You're held in possession by the things of the devil. Self righteousness, folks, by the way, is of the devil. So when we think it's not such a big deal that people believe they can be saved by works, that's a self righteous work of the devil. If you think your works have anything to do with saving you, that is self-righteousness, and that's a lie directly from the pit of hell because you, your righteousness is nowhere near enough. Works are the result of a converted, regenerated heart. Heaven and hell is not determined by whether your good works outweighed your bad. Folks, there are people sitting in churches all over this country who believe that. Every week, they empty and sweep out their houses and they garnish it a little bit and they say, look, my works are good enough. Your works will never be good enough. No work of the flesh, no work even done in the proper motivation. A sincere heart does not mean a person is redeemed. The Pharisees, no doubt, have proven to us and they continue to prove to us that they had a hatred for Christ. Remember, we started this... We started this chapter by what appeared to be nothing more than plucking corn. Yet Jesus, in verse 14, was reminded, we're reminded through what the account of Jesus that the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Everything the Pharisees were doing was to plot his destruction. The evil spirit was certainly at work, an unclean spirit. Folks, I don't know how deep the devil's influence and the demons are running in our world today. But I do know that I believe scriptures tell us that he is at work. Spiritual warfare, and even Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians about taking on the whole armor of God. 
And I'm not talking about some silly illustration trying to bring a person standing in armor here. to I'm telling you, he's telling you that you need that to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You need the entirety of God. And this is not a game that's being played. And yet, we continue to allow influences even into our Christian homes. And we say things like, it's innocent. It's not causing any harm. It's just entertainment. It's just for fun. I can assure you the devil's not looking at it that way. Now, the devil can't take the soul of a person who's been saved, but you think he can't think that there's some joy to be brought from this? Yeah, the Bible itself says there's pleasure in sin for a season. You tell your children and you tell each other, there's no pleasure in sin. That's, that's Bible contrary. It says there's pleasure in sin for a season. Because there is. But the reality is a sin is an abomination against God. We're so afraid of speaking about these truths and things we've talked about today. We're so afraid of speaking at the power of the Holy Spirit like we learned this morning that we're afraid of being labeled as charismatic. We're afraid of being labeled as something. Yet it's the very power of the Spirit is what allows us to live a life in this present and evil world and live it for the glory of God. It's the dwelling of the Spirit within the house, the believer, that keeps the devil and the unclean spirit out. Jesus was calling the Pharisees to repent, to recognize and acknowledge that the kingdom of God is right in front of you. It's in the person of Christ. In these words, the unclean spirit, Jesus was calling the Pharisees and He's warning them about the eternal futility of self-reformation and self-righteousness. Much like that publican and that Pharisee that count we read in the book of Luke. How the Pharisee was very quick to point out, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I'm so glad I'm not like that man. I tithe. I fast. I give. And the publican, because he recognized the fear and the holiness of God, he couldn't even look up to heaven. He could just smite himself on the breast and said, Oh God, have have mercy to me, a sinner. Folks, that's where we are. Everything we have is because of the mercy of God. God's mercy. Not our works, not our righteousness. As Isaiah says, all of them are as filthy rags. But because of the righteousness of our Savior, the righteousness of Christ. If you're you're relying on your self-reformation, your own righteousness, your own works to get you to glory, you have a house that the unclean spirit is more than happy to occupy. Look, I'm not trying to be emotional and manipulate you this morning. That's just what Scripture's saying. This, un, this unclean spirit, you've got to determine whether you're going to believe that or not. Folks, I'm telling you, I'm not an expert in anything, but I have talked with many, many a person. When you talk to them and they tell me that some of the things that they've experienced in their life, look, the, the, the demonic influence is more prevalent than what we're given credit for. And we as Christians who are believers applying to us today, be careful. Be on guard. Paul Paul was very careful about what he put before him. David said, I'll put no wicked thing before my eyes. I realize he's he's talking more than just our day-to-day things, but his focus and his eyes were on God. So if you're a believer here this morning, 
I would just simply admonish you, guard your house. Parents, grandparents, we keep our children all together. We keep our families together for a reason, and this is one of them. Even if our kids can't understand everything that's being said, I want them to hear it. And I want parents, because it's your responsibility. The Bible says it's your responsibility to teach your children. We're coming alongside of you and helping you by showing you again what the Bible says. But you have to teach your children. Guard your home. If you're an unbeliever here today, the command is the same as it is every single week. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin and believe on Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank